Why did Jesus die? Why is it that the instrument of Jesus' death became the symbol for Christian life? Do you ever think about that? Many people have said that that would have been unthinkable. That the cross would become all of a sudden the symbol for Christian life. That it would be akin to today if we wore electric chairs around our necks. Or if we wore a noose around our necks. It, it seems crazy. It seems silly. As a, but even worse than that, it's not just some general form of execution that Christians look to as a symbol of their hope. It's not some general symbol um, of, of death that Christians adopted. Rather, it was the death of someone they loved and cared about. It was the, the instrument of death for someone that was a friend, someone that they had known. So this would be like if your mother was killed in a drunk driving accident by a Ford truck, and then all of a sudden you started wearing a Ford truck around your neck. This would be as if you're not a locket of a picture of them, but instead the very instrument of their death. Christians took the instrument of death for the one that was their friend, their savior, their God, their king, their, their teacher, all of these things, and then took that instrument of death and it became the symbol of their life. And it's something now throughout history that Christians have looked back at the death of Jesus as a source of peace, as a source of comfort, as a source of hope, as a source of love, as a source of faith, as a source of all these things. So what's the significance? Why did Jesus die? And if you're a Christian, you probably have an answer to that question. And there's many answers to that question, actually. There's a pastor, author named John Piper who wrote a book called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Died. So we're not going to talk about all of that, but there's at least four we'll look at in the next coming weeks. But there are many reasons that Jesus died. There's many angles to look at of what the Bible speaks about of why he died. So tonight we're going to take a look at one of those. And my hope for you is this. If you're not a Christian, that as we talk about why Jesus died, you would see why it's so important to Christians. You would see why maybe it's so important to a friend of yours. If a friend brought you, you would see why Christians have always had the cross as a symbol of importance. And if you are a Christian, my hope for you is this, that old truths that maybe you've heard many times would become a little more real, would become a little more applicable to where you are now in your life. So tonight we're going to answer the question why Jesus died and we're going to look at this reason and we'll un, we'll unpack this and explain this tonight. Here's here's the first reason. Jesus died for your sins. Quite simple enough, right? And we've talked about this many times. This probably isn't You're probably not taking notes on that. That probably didn't shock you if you have been in the church for any period of time. But what does that actually mean? What does that look like? Let's let's look at this. So first, we have to talk about us. If we're going to talk about why Jesus died, we have to talk about us. We have to talk about the world. If we're going to talk about that Jesus died for our sins, we have to talk about who we are. We have to talk about the condition. And, And I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination looking around the world to say that something's wrong with the world, right? Something's wrong with the world. Um, If the world was a marriage, then we would probably say as a whole it needed marriage counseling. If the world was a child's uh, grades in school, we would say you might not quite be getting all A's. There's something wrong with the world. 
And it's not just the natural disasters, tornadoes and hurricanes. It's not just disease, sickness and, and things that trouble us along that sort. It's not just unfortunate accidents that happen. There's something wrong with humanity. There's something wrong with people, whether that's racism or violence or oppression or inequality or bitterness or making fun of people or bullying or whatever it might be. There's something wrong with humans, the way they relate to one another. There's something wrong with that. We would all agree that there's something wrong with the world, something wrong with humans, but it's, it's even beyond that. It's not just out there. It's in us. There's something wrong with, with us. So it's not just humanity in general. It's not just um, those bad, evil people over there. It's not just certain bad apples in the bunch. If we're honest, we would say, well, there's something wrong with me also. There's something wrong here, not just out there. There's something wrong with us. There's something that has gone wrong with the world. And I think that um, one man who articulated this well is a man named G.K. Chesterton. And about a hundred years ago in London, they, they sent out uh, an article in the newspaper, if you know what that is, and um, the print. And they said, uh, hey, we want you to submit essays saying, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton responded and said, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That's it. And I think that's true. If we look, when we're honest, we would say there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong inside of me in honest moments. I know you don't probably walk around all day just saying there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. Maybe some of you do, but you probably don't do that for the most part. Um, But on honest days, maybe it's those moments when something really goes bad. Marriage ends or you yell at someone you love or you um, you mistreat somebody that you care about and you see it up close and personal. Or maybe it's just on more reflective days, a birthday maybe, or New Year's and you kind of look in the mirror and just think, what? Is, is this really who I want to be? Is this really where I want to be? How did I get here? How, did this, how am I here now at 20, at 30, at 40, at however old? How did I get here? And you look and see it's choices that you made. When we're honest, when we're reflective, we do see there's something wrong with us. There's something that has gone askew, not just out there in the world in general, but inside of us. So now that you're all feeling very happy... Um, <laughs> For the most part, though, we deny this, right? We ignore that. The the world around us helps us do that, whether it's just stay busy or stay distracted or do these things or do those things or, or just focus on the good parts of you. Yeah, that's bad, but just focus on the good stuff. Think positively. Think positively. Don't, don't think about the bad stuff. So I think there's this tension because we feel in our most honest moments something's not quite right. But then the world around us and our own inner gyroscope or whatever it is uh, in some sort of instrumentation makes us try to deny it, ignore it, push it away. 
And we don't want to come face to face with it. So we're kind of always in this tension, always in this balance of feeling in some degree there's something wrong with me. But no, 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 just keep going. Just keep chugging along. Don't think about that stuff. And that's where we find ourselves. That's what our condition is. And we, we are helplessly addicted to thinking that we're better than we are. We think we're so much better than we are. And I remember several years ago, about five years ago, I went into the doctor. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, but I went into the doctor uh, because I thought I was doing great. And this was a naturopathic doctor. And many of my friends had been to this doctor and had gone and he prescribed some different vitamins or supplements or different things. And after that felt great. So I was like, well, I feel pretty good, but I'll go to this doctor and maybe he can give me a couple helps here and there, a couple tweaks here and there, and, and I'll move from an eight to a 10. You know, I feel pretty good, but I'll be better. And I went in, did a bunch of blood tests, did all this stuff, and it came back. And the worst part of it all, I was allergic to gluten and um, I was, had high cholesterol and blood sugar problems and all this stuff, all these things came out. I thought I was good. And I just wanted him to make me a little bit better. I thought I was doing well, and I just wanted a little bit of help, a little bit of a boost. And sometimes we treat the Bible that way. Sometimes we treat church that way. Sometimes in general we treat religion that way, God that way. Well, I'm doing pretty good, but God can give me that extra boost. God can give me that extra push. God can give me that extra help. I'm a, I'm a good person, but, you know, if I want to work on the spiritual component of my life, I need God to help with that. I need a little bit of a, a boost. But we deny and miss the true reality of our condition. We miss the truth of how bad we actually are. And what I want to do is help tonight as a doctor of sorts. And to help us really see the truth of our condition. To help us see it. And let's just be honest about it. I, I don't think I'm going to say anything to you that you probably haven't thought as far as what our condition is, I don't think I'm going to say anything that's going to, that's going to be so mind-blowing because I think that we know this already, but we suppress it. I think we know the truth, but we suppress the truth. But let's look at what the Bible says about our condition. Let's look at the, what the Bible says about who it is that we are. Let's, let's begin with this. The Bible says that we disobey what God speaks to us. And so some of the way the Bible talks about sin is this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Or 1 John 5.17 says all wrongdoing is sin. So here's what the Bible says. That we all do things that we should not do. We all do things we shouldn't do. Now, this is not something that you um, do not know already. One of the primary um, things that I have heard from people that don't believe in God, from different atheist writers and thinkers, is they say, it's a, it's a foolish thing to say that we need the Bible to tell us what to do. It's a foolish thing to think that we need the Bible to help us be moral people. That's ridiculous. We don't need the Bible to be moral people. We don't need the Bible to tell us what's right and what is wrong. And though I disagree with that to the fullest extent of what it means, what's true about that is this. What's true is 
whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you take the Bible at face value or not, we, we all know we shouldn't lie to people. We all know that. We all know you shouldn't harm children. We all know that you shouldn't be selfish, right? They teach little kids that from the very beginning, not from the Bible, just from general understanding, share. We all know that we shouldn't betray our friends that love us. We all know it's not right to take another man's wife as your own. We all know these things. You don't need the Bible to tell you that. So wherever you are across the spectrum, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to understand that, yeah, there's certain things that you're not supposed to do. We all know that we shouldn't have a sense of arrogance and self-righteousness and pride over other people. That we, should, that we shouldn't disrespect people. We know these things. And yet, don't you do things that you know you shouldn't do? And don't you do things that you know you shouldn't do? At least at some point in your life, if not today, earlier. Don't you do things that you know you should not do? We all know that we do things we shouldn't do. I do things I shouldn't do. I've done things I shouldn't have done. And so do you. We all know that. And the Bible says that this is sin. That we do things we shouldn't do. Part of our condition of what's wrong with us is we do things that even are against our own standards. I mean, I'm not even talking about the Bible standards. I'm just talking about your standards, my standards. That we do things that we know we shouldn't do. This is not controversial. We all know that we, that we do that. Likewise, the Bible says this. James, one of Jesus' brothers, says this in his letter to the church. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We all know this as well. Aren't there things that you believe that you should do and then you don't do it? Whoever knows the right thing to do and then doesn't do it, that's sin. So the Bible says that part of the condition that's wrong with us is we look at our life, we look at our circumstances, and we go, ah, this would be the right thing to do. And then we go, ah, but I'm not going to do it. Haven't you ever done that? Haven't you ever felt this would be the right thing to do in this moment, in this time, in this situation, in this instance? This is the right thing to do, but I'm just not going to do it. We felt that. Again, you don't have to be a Christian to, to understand that this is a part of the human condition that we live in. We do those things that we shouldn't do, and we don't do things that we should do. You know that. You can't look at your life and go every single moment of every single day of every single year, I always do what I know I should do. No, we don't do that. So what's going on? Why are we so defective? What's, what's going on with us? That just by our own standards, we fail. Just by our own standards, we don't do what we should do and do do what we shouldn't do. Much less by God's standards. I mean, there's, there's tons in here beyond just your own individual conscience. But it gets deeper than that. There's more. Just keeps going. This is like an infomercial where there's, but wait, there's more. It's a sinfomercial. It just keeps going. <clears throat> I just made that up. I don't. So here's what else the Bible says. Here's what Jesus says. <clears throat> he says this. 
And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man or woman, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So here's what this is saying. It's not just those things that you do. It's not just those things that you don't do. It goes deeper than that to our thoughts and to our motives. See, Jesus lists some actions, murder, theft, sexual immorality. He lists some actions, some things that we do and some things that we know that we uh, should do. He lists some of those things, but he lists deeper than that. See, God made you and God cares about all of you. You're, you're a holistic person. You're not just the appendages of your body. You're not just the physical. There's more to you than that. God made you so he cares about every part of you. He cares about what's going on in your mind. And he cares about what's going on in your heart. He cares about your motives. He cares about your thoughts. Jesus says here that out of the heart of man. So there's, there's inner desires and, and heart feelings and motives. And he says, come evil thoughts. So he cares about what it is you're thinking. And he lists as some of the things on here, coveting and envy and pride. Those are inner things, right? Coveting is a desire for something that you want more than you should want it. Envy is a, is a jealousy of what other people have and you, and you want it. Pride is this superiority feeling. Those are inner things. They're not just the things that you do or don't do. Jesus says, I care about all of it. I care about what's going on in your mind. I care about what's going on in your heart. I care about your motives and your thoughts, not just the actions. So see, if you're judging yourself and you look at your life and you go, okay, so do I have a problem? I don't do a lot of bad things. I do a lot of pretty good things. But what about your mind? What about your motives? Let me ask you this. Let's just get real here. If, if this TV had the power, and it doesn't, just so you know, if you get freaked out, if this had the power, if we could plug in your mind with a USB cable and show all the thoughts you've ever had, and then I brought your grandma to the front row, not your buddies, not your drinking buddies. I bought, I brought your grandma to the front row and I said, we're not going to show her anything you've done. You're off the hook for that. We're not going to show her anything you've ever done, but we're going to show her everything you've ever thought and every motive you've ever had for what you've done. And then we started to flip through and you said, grandma, YOLO grandma. I mean, I mean, what, what would you say? We brought your mom in. We brought your grandma in. We brought your, the person you most respect in. And just showed your thoughts. And just showed your motives. See, sometimes when we hear that God cares about our thoughts, when we hear that God cares about our motives, we go, well, that's a little silly. I mean, come on, God. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I've heard this said before by people that are not Christians. Of That's, that's, 
that's Orwellian. It's, it's like God's the NSA just monitoring everything we think. But you yourself know, we know that we're ashamed even of our thoughts and our motives. We are. We don't need, we don't, we don't need to, to, to judge God that he cares about that. We ourselves are ashamed of that. If I were to say, if your grandma were there, okay, and your grandma's cool, but what about God? The reason to be ashamed, the reason I can use grandma is because, you know, grandmas just have this holy uh, aura around them. But God, much more holy, he sees that stuff. He sees the motives. He sees the thoughts. I mean, if I told you that I hated a people of a certain race. If I said, you know, I just hate all Native Americans. But listen, I work for their equality. I've never said anything bad about them. Other than this one instance that I'm telling you. I campaign for their rights. I do all sorts of good things. But in my heart, I hate them. You would still think something's wrong with you. You wouldn't just go, well, that's okay. As long as you do the right things. You would say something is wrong because our thoughts and our motives reveal who we are. Our thoughts and our motives reveal who we are too. So, there's things that we do that we shouldn't do, even by our own standards. There's things that we don't do that we should do, even by our own standards. And there's thoughts and there's motives that work within us. That we know are wrong. All across the board. Just by our own standards. Much less by God's standards. And. Here's the thing. Obedience. Is a measurement. Of your heart. Obedience. Listening. To God is a measurement of your heart. Now let me explain this. If you see a child. A 10-year-old child, let's say. And they're always disobeying their parents in outright ways. Now, children, of course, disobey, but they're always doing things. You would say, something's wrong with this relationship here. This kid either doesn't respect their parents or doesn't love their parents or something's going on. They're just, they're just always doing whatever they want and telling their father, telling their mother, I don't, I'm going to do what I want. You would say, something's wrong with the relationship. Because obedience measures the relationship. You'd say the same thing if it was just a work relationship. Now, I think most people probably hear some of the things their boss says and, and then go, okay, I'm not going to do all that. I don't think that we should really do that thing. But most people would say, you know what? If, I mean, again, even not by Christian Bible standards, just looking at someone's life, if everything was, nope, not going to do that, boss. Nope, not going to do that. Nope, not going to do that. Go, something's wrong there. Or even on just a less dramatic level. If somebody cuts in line all the time. You would go, that's, you're just breaking the laws of social norms. Something, you, you don't have respect. You, there's something wrong there. Okay, so I'm telling you all three of those things to say this. That obedience, our, our response to authority above us, shows the health of a relationship. Whether that's parent-child, whether it's employee-employer, whether it's just civil person to society, whatever it is, it shows the health of a relationship. So something is wrong then. Something is wrong 
in our lives that our thoughts, our motives, our actions, our non-actions go against God. Don't listen to God. Okay, so what do we do then? Because you might be feeling some sense of guilt or sense of, oh, that's too bad. Whatever that feeling is. Regret. What do we do? Because I think now the natural jump, the natural inclination is to say, well, I need to do some good things. You just showed me how bad I am. I need to do some good things. If I do some good things, maybe I can measure it out. Because here's the deal. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. So you're saying that I've got some bad stuff, and I agree. But I need to do some more good stuff, and then things will, then things will be okay. But there's a lot of problems with this. There's a lot of problem with that idea. And whether you view that idea in more of a karmic sense, which is if I do a bad deed, then I need to do a good deed and measure it out. Or if you just view it in a general sense of I'm a pretty good person and at the end of my life, I'm going to come to God and say, hey, I've, I've lived a good life. I'm a good person. However you view it, there's a lot of problems with this idea of your goodness getting you out of the bad condition we just described. Let me tell you a few of them. The first problem is this. Who's to say how good you are? Who's to say how good is good enough? If your goodness is going to get you out of your badness, who's to say how good is good enough? Almost everybody would say, I think I'm a pretty good person. Compared to, and throw in Hitler or Stalin or something to make yourself look pretty good, right? I mean, I'm not, I didn't murder anybody. I didn't kill anybody. But there's more on that list and other lists. But who's to say how good is good enough? If you look to your goodness to get you out of your badness, how good is good enough? I mean, if you look at the Bible, Jesus tells us to be perfect. He didn't say, don't be like Hitler, right? That's pretty easy. So who's to say how good is good enough? Because even if we just judge ourselves by our own standards, we've already failed. If I just judge my own life by my standards, if I don't even open the Bible and I just write out what is a good person, I've already failed. You've already failed. Just based on your own standards. So how good is good enough? If goodness is going to get you out of your badness, the first problem with that is how good is good enough? Second problem is this. It's a very unjust system. Because imagine this. If I come and hit you in the face and go, okay, that was bad. Don't show that to my grandma. But now, because of this badness, I'm going to do some good things. I'm going to go volunteer with the homeless. Does that really make up for that? That's a very unjust system. Karma is the most unjust system that exists. Because what it says is, your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds at the end of the day. But that's just viewing morality as a currency. So I'm able to go spend some goodness and then I got to go gain it back by doing good things. But that means I can take a calculated risk and say, you know what? This is going to cost me $10,000 of goodness on my account, but I want to do it. 
And then I just got to work it off and do some good things to credit back my account. But yet that's how many people view the world as karma. I've done some bad things and some bad things happened. I've done some good things and some good things are happening. If I do these bad things, I need to do some good things to, to even it out. That's a, whole, that's a very unjust system that lets bad people off the hook by just doing some good things. Here's a third problem. Third problem is this. It privileges certain people. I mean, it privileges people that grew up with good parents, that grew up in good homes, that grew up with good education, that taught them the right things, that taught them the, the moral things to do, that were good examples, that had good role models, that, that helped them, that provided for them. It privileges a certain kind of people that are just naturally disposed or circumstantially disposed towards goodness. And here's the fourth problem. Perhaps the biggest problem of all is this. Even at the end of the day, even our good deeds are defective. Even the good things we do are defective. Let me show you this. Here's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read you both of these and we'll compare them. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So he says, do good things. And people will look at that and go, God is awesome. That's what glorify means. Do good things. People will look at your life and go, man, God must be good if you live that kind of life. You're willing to spend money to help others and not just build up your own kingdom. You must really believe God is good. You're willing to love your enemies and, and help them when they're in trouble. Man, that, whatever God you serve must be good. Okay, so that's the motive for doing good things. But just a little bit later, he says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness. That's your good stuff. Before other people in order to be seen by them. For you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. So he says that a lot of times the good things that we do, it's because we want other people to see them. We want other people to know. We post it on Facebook. We tweet about it. We tell our friends, we put it in the newsletter at Christmas time. We want other people to see how good we are. Be careful of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's the opposite. That's I want glory instead of I want God to have glory. I want people to see that I'm good, not I want people to see that God is good. So you see the fourth and possibly most pervasive reason that our goodness cannot get us out of our badness is because even our goodness is tainted. Even your goodness is tainted. Even your goodness is marked by a desire for other people to go, you're good. Even your goodness is tainted. Even the best things that you've done often are because you want other people to see it. Let's look at this just a little bit further here. Oh, wait, that's my next one. I guess not. That's, we're only going to look at it that much. What I want you to picture is this. Picture a scale with a, a balancing two different weights. 
And how we often view life is that this side are, are, is our badness. And there's a couple, let's say, pebbles over here. So we need to even out the scale. So we add a couple good pebbles over here. But as we've looked a little more carefully, we've seen that our badness isn't just a couple pebbles. When you take the ways that we do what we shouldn't do, we don't do what we should do, our thoughts, our motives, all of that, it's more of a brick. So all the little pebbles that we put on there of goodness, it's not really going to change it much. But here's what happens. Because even our good deeds are tainted. Even our good deeds are marked by wanting others to see us. What that actually is, is you've got the brick of all your badness and some pebbles of your goodness. In reality, that whole scale is actually lifted up and put on top of another scale. So even your goodness on that scale that you think is balancing out your badness is actually just more badness on this scale. See, even the good things that we do, if they're done from a place that says, I want to look good, I want people to to see me as good, not I do good because I want people to see God as good. It's actually just even more so making the scale go down. All the while thinking we're evening out the scale, it's making the scale get heavier and heavier and heavier. I was supposed to show this. Um, Here's what Jesus, uh, not Jesus, here's what Samuel says. But the Lord said to Samuel, this is God speaking, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. He's talking about a man that that they wanted to make king. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So it's not just the outward appearance of your good stuff. God is always looking straight to at the heart. And then finally, in Romans, Paul tells us this. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever we do in our life, whether good or bad, all the good things you do in your life, if that doesn't come from a place of, I want people to see that God is good, I want people to trust in God, I want people to know God. It's sin. So you see, we do bad things and we do good things. But our good can't take us out of our bad. Because even the good is tainted. Even the good is tainted. But it goes deeper than that. (laughs) I mean, it just keeps going. I want you to feel the weight of this. It keeps going because there's more than just our motives, our thoughts, our goodness, our badness, our our not listening to God. There's more than all of that still yet. And here's what we see. Paul says this in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's what this means. In our sin, its essence is that we fall short of the glory of God. What that means is we glorify other things. We worship other things. 
So, here's the worst sin of all. The worst sin of all is preferring other things above God. The worst sin of all is loving other things more than instead of God. I mean, that's what Jesus told us. He said that the greatest commandment of all is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, at its essence, sin is glorifying other things more than God. And we consistently aim our sights low. We fall short of God's glory and glorify other things, enjoy other things, prefer other things, worship other things, love other things. See, the depths of our condition is not just bad things and not doing good things. It's that at the core, we don't love God more than we love other things. And if you're not a Christian, you would just say, yeah, that's true. Right? I don't love God more than other things. But even as Christians, is it not true that the way our life plays out, we prefer other things more than God? That we think other things are so awesome and great more than God at different times in our life. We prefer other things, our preferences, our actions, the way life plays out. What's at the center? What's at the center of your life? So you see, it just keeps getting worse. Even if you live a great life, let's let's just say this. Let's say you live a a great life, but God's not at the center. Is that a problem? I mean, imagine that a mother has a son. And she raises this son. And she loves this son. And she cares for this son. And the son leaves home. And he does everything his mom ever taught him. He lives exactly how she wanted him to live. But he never calls. Never writes. He never visits. He just says, I'm going to live a good life doing everything you've ever told me to do. But you're not you're not a part of my life. We're not in relationship with one another. We wouldn't say, well, that's okay. They're living a good life. You see, our condition at its core, the core, core, core piece of it all is that we choose other things instead of God. We love other things instead of God. We prefer other things instead of God, no matter how good that our lives may look or no matter how bad they may look for that matter. It's easy to look at evil in the world and say that's bad. It's easy to look at particular individuals that are very twisted and dark, serial killer folk, and go that's bad. But... However it plays itself out in your life, however it plays itself out in my life, it's the same seeds. It's different fruit that blooms. It's different trees that, that, and branches and how they form, but it's the same seed in all of us. There's a family resemblance to all of it. That sin, our condition is, life's about me, not about God. And we know this to be true. We know that to be true. So, it doesn't get worse than that. That's, that's as deep as it goes. So, no big deal? I mean, what do we do with that? Our goodness can't get us out of it. We're bad, and our goodness can't take us out of it. 
So what happens? Can God just say, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. What happens? Here's what the Bible says. For the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel says this, Behold, all, this is what God is speaking, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And this is saying that there will be spiritual death, life apart from God, experienced even in this world. Physical death, that the, the result of our sin is that there's death physically. And eternal death, which is life apart from God forever. So, you're bad, I'm bad, we can't get out of it by being good, and <clears throat> we're going to die because of it. Does that seem too intense? Um, does it seem a little intense that God would say the wage of sin, which is to say the payment for sin, here's, here's your payment for your sin, is death. Does that seem a little too intense? Come on, God. Even if I lived a good life, that's, that's what it is? <clears throat> even, if I, even if I did good things, that's what it is? Just because I don't love you? The insult and the offense always has a greater weight depending on the glory or dignity or specialness or holiness of the person. So you can lie to the person checking out your groceries. I'm not saying you should. You can lie to the person checking out your groceries, whatever it might be. And you're not going to get arrested because the government doesn't view them as super special. But if you lie to an FBI agent, that's a federal crime because there's a specialness. There is a higher dignity that is placed on them or court, right? If, if you had a judge and he was one of your friends and you guys were out playing basketball and uh, you said, he asks you, what's the score? And you decide to give yourself a couple points because he doesn't remember. And you say, it's uh, 30 to 28. Yeah, I'm ahead. He goes, oh, okay. No big deal in the eyes of the law. But when, in, when he's in his office of judge and he's sitting in the courtroom and if for some reason you had to stand before him and if you lie, not about the basketball thing unless he decided to do that, um, what's that? That's perjury because of the dignity of the office, because of the specialness of the office. The offense always increases with the dignity, with the specialness, with the holiness of the office. You can talk bad about a lot of people. But if you talk bad about someone's mama, that's not good, right? And you can say a lot of things about a lot of people, but you talk about my mama, it's not going well. The dignity, the specialness, the uniqueness of the office, the offense always increases. So it would be unjust of God to say, Oh, yeah, you didn't have me at the center of your life. Yeah, you didn't love me. Yeah, you dishonored me. Yeah, you disrespected me. Hey, it's all good. That would be unjust of God to do that. He would be endorsing 
those actions, he would be endorsing the dishonor of the most special of persons himself. He would be endorsing that. He would be saying, it's okay. It's unjust of God not to look at our great offenses towards him and not have death be the penalty. It would be unjust of him because if it would be wrong to lie to the FBI or a judge or to talk bad about someone's mom, if that's bad, imagine the infinite degrees between that and God. So it would be unjust of him to endorse that kind of life. This leaves us in a precarious predicament. God's just. We're worse than we think we are. Our goodness can't get us out of it. Our goodness is just part of the problem. And God says that the penalty is death. I mean, that leaves us in a bit of a precarious position. So if I can't do anything to get myself out of it, if all the good that I do actually just mounds up on the scales more, what happens? This is where we come to the cross. Why did Jesus die? God's not just content to have his wrath against us. He has holy wrath. His wrath is just. But he's not content to leave it at that. He's not content to let that be the last word. Here's what John, one of Jesus' closest friends, tells us in his letter. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here's what this means. God does not cancel his wrath against us. That God has wrath against us and he doesn't just say, never mind. He couldn't do that. It would be wrong of him to do that. It would be unjust of him to do that. He does not cancel the wrath against us. Instead, what this word propitiation means is he absorbs it. He sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, which is to say this. All of that wrath should be coming against you. It should be coming against me. All of God's anger and his justice for the way that we've lived our lives should be coming against you. But... Jesus on the cross absorbs it all into himself. He takes it all. All those pictures we showed your grandma, he takes that. All those things that you've done that are breaking even your own standards, much less God's standards, all those things that you didn't do at the moment that you should have done it on your worst day, on your worst day. Death is what you should have gotten. And because God is just, he does not say, forget about it. But he says something better. He says, I'm going to absorb it on myself instead. And Jesus lived a perfect life, so he's able to do that. Because he doesn't have any sin that he is supposed to pay for himself. He is the slate's clean for him to be able to pay for our sin. He can take it on himself. That's what propitiation means. It means that he absorbs it, that he takes it. The bullet's coming at us and Jesus stands in the middle. Innocent Jesus stands in the middle and takes it.
Why can't he just forgive us? Why does he have to throw a big fit about it? Why can't he just let us off the hook and just say, I forgive you? Because, I'll read this to you in a moment, but because we can never do that with forgiveness. There's always a cost to forgiving someone. There's always a price that has to be paid with forgiving. Even at a small level, if I uh, slash your tires and you say, I forgive you, well, someone's got to pay the cost. Either I say, I forgive you, but I'll pay for it. Or you say, I forgive you and I will pay for it. The cost still exists and somebody has to pay it. I mean, on a, on a, on a larger scale, if James Holmes goes into the court and they just go, hey, you know what? We're going to forgive you. People would be outraged. But don't we like forgiveness? We would be outraged. Forgiveness can never just settle it. There has to be a cost that's paid. And here's what Peter says. He himself, this is talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body. That says Jesus took them into his body on the tree. That's a metaphor for the cross. So he himself on the cross took our sins. They've got to go somewhere. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So because Jesus was wounded on the cross, we are able to experience healing because it was absorbed. Can't just forgive it. He can forgive it because it's been paid for. Because the cost has been absorbed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. His justice demands our death. But his love causes him to take our place instead. Justice is still served, but he's the one that takes our place. Many people have said that on the cross is where Jesus' justice and his mercy kiss because he shows us both perfectly there on the cross. That we are so bad that it took God himself to die, but he is so good that he himself would die for us. That that is what That's why Jesus died. He died so we wouldn't have to. He died so that our sins would be taken care of. He died so that we would be forgiven. He died so that that sin is no longer held against us. And if you're in Christ, if if by faith you have attached yourself to Christ, then this is true of you. That the mound of stuff that we talked about All the things that you've done, all the things that you didn't do, all the thoughts, all the motives, all the good, all of it. It's on the cross. If you're in Jesus. It's on the cross. And if you're not a Christian, put your faith in him, which means to say, ask him to make that true of you. Believe that he did that for you. And if you are a Christian, it is by believing this over and over and over again. In all the ways of our life, as we see our sin, as we're honest with it, instead of trying to hide from it and minimize it and skirt away from it, as we say, yep, 
that thought, yep, that motive, yep, that action, yep, that, yep. We can be honest with it because we can say Jesus paid for it on the cross. And as you see that and as you believe that, that causes your heart to be amazed in such a way that you actually begin to change. Let me tell you one final story. John Newton is the man that wrote the song Amazing Grace. And here's what John Newton's life was like. John Newton was a slave trader. So in London, he was on the ships that would buy and sell slaves. They would kidnap people and then sell them. He was a slave trader. And one night, it got all stormy on the waters and the boat, and it was kind of crazy. And he had been reading this Christian book, a couple of them actually. He had been reading these books and was starting to think about things, starting to think about God, starting to think about Jesus. And he had a reputation for being a horrible person. You know the phrase, cuss like a sailor and that kind of thing? Sailors thought his mouth was bad. Seriously. They said that he not only said bad things, he invented new bad things to say because he had maxed out his vocabulary. So he had this reputation of being this horrible person, sexually abusive, all sorts of things. And then... As the waters are raging and stuff's going crazy, he prays to God, God, have mercy on me. God, if you get me through this, God, save me. And what happens? He becomes a Christian. He starts to follow Jesus. He writes amazing grace. But guess what? He didn't quit the slave trade. He stayed as a slave trader for many years, even after he was a Christian. It wasn't until... Several years later, after he wrote Amazing Grace, after he had become a Christian, it wasn't until several years later that he actually stopped the slave trade and then hooked up with Wilberforce to to be actively campaigning against slavery and the slave trade and speaking out against it. It wasn't until years later. He did all of that. But here's why I want to tell you that story. Because it... It took him acknowledging and seeing, I'm bad. There's guilt in me. There's stuff wrong with me. It took that, and he sang Amazing Grace, and he wrote that beautiful hymn, the most popular hymn in the world. But once you go down that road, it does not stop. Once you go down that road of seeing, I'm a wretch, and I need a Savior, Once you begin to go down that road, it does not stop. It keeps going. And it took time. I mean, it might be a great story if it was all dramatic and it happened at once in the end. But is that your life? Because it's not mine. It took time. But once that ball gets rolling, I'm telling you, it's unstoppable. It keeps going. Once the grace of God comes into your life in such a way that you say, I'm guilty. I'm a wretch. That's a powerful word. Do you use that word of yourself? I'm a wretch. Once you view that as true, that snowballs into your life and it keeps going and it keeps going and it doesn't stop. And it changes both your life and the lives of those around you. And it has impact and it leads to good deeds and it leads to righteousness and it leads to all sorts of things. When you see the truth, when you're willing to be honest, 
I'm a wretch. It snowballs. So much time we want to fight that. Keep it back up there. No, I'm pretty good. I'm not that bad. I'm okay. I'm Keep that snowball up there. And it will stay there. If John Newton would have done that, he would have stopped cussing. We want to keep the snowball up there instead of letting it roll down and be willing. I have to think that at the end of his life, when John Newton sang Amazing Grace, it had way more meaning than it had when he first wrote it. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I mean, that's got to have way more meaning at the end of your life when you let the snowball of grace keep going. So if you're not a Christian, put your trust in Jesus today. And if you are a Christian, will you let that snowball keep going to the degree that you see how bad you are and how holy and righteous his wrath is against you but yet how big and how great the cross is in between is to the degree of how loud you're going to sing amazing grace how real that's going to be to your heart not just in the past but in the present in the present do you feel that you need amazing grace let it keep going jesus has grace for you not just at your worst moment, but at your best moment and all the moments you think are your best moments.